Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio is my colleague, Niklas Sävos. How are you doing, Niklas? Could it be better? It's a fantastic day in Stockholm. Sun is shining. Summer is here. It's great. Great. Same here. And today we are excited to talk with Pete Davis, a commitment superfan and a civic advocate from Falls Church, Virginia. He is the co-founder of the Democratic Policy Network, and his Harvard Law graduation speech has been viewed more than 30 million times. And in May 2021, his book dedicated The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing was published, which is very relates a lot to the graduation speech. Uh, what are your thoughts on the book after reading it, Nicholas? I think it's both an interesting and important book in this time, in this time uh, where, I mean, I think everybody struggles with making long-term commitments. Uh, one example is education, where you can go educate yourself for 15 years without knowing what to do next. Uh, so I think, uh, I mean, this creed that Pete Davis is um, is describing in the book with the counterculture to the browsing culture is really, really important. Yeah, and one metaphor that he uses that I think is really good, uh, he says that we grow up in kind of a locked room, people feel the need for a liberation and then you become free and you enter the hallway and it's so exciting you can just run around go to different rooms try out and find yourself in so many ways and it's really that is the browsing mode but when it's just endless browsing and the novelty is not giving you any meaning uh, in the end you don't want to live in a hallway you want to find your place uh, where you feel good and uh, the people that you want to have around you and so on so I think that was a really good message that I'm taking with me from the book. And how do you think dedication and commitment is applicable for us as investors? Um, I think it's two parts. Uh, one is your own behavior as an investor, which is really important, um, like how you develop conviction in cases and avoid commitment bias and sunk cost fallacy. And the other part is more like analyzing um, some business and mostly here it's management, like will they be willing to stick it out Are they taking long-term decisions and so on? So that really aligns with the red eye quality rating. Um, can you like what more is related to that in this episode? So I think on the people side, I mean, we look for passionate leaders uh, that are visionary, have long-term perspectives, and uh, of course, we also grade businesses that are sustainable. Yeah, and it's really, the book dedicated really relates to one of the core culture values here at Red Eye as well, which is that we're in it for the marathon. So a really good read. Yeah, and I think just to end, I think uh, what's important is that uh, investing is both an art and science, but it's also a craft. And it's about honing that craft and, and be a bit better every day. That's very true. And here comes our conversation with Pete Davis. Welcome to the podcast, Pete. Great to have you on. So glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're really excited to talk about your new book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And here at Investing by the Books, we love reading. And one reason is because the authors are so dedicated to writing them. Um, so we were a bit curious to hear, you said your book is a prequel to basically everything. What kind of feedback have you received so far? 
Oh, well, you know, it's been an interesting journey with the book because the book is based on a speech that I gave three years ago. So I've actually been able to have three years, even while I was writing this book, and especially after it came out, of feedback on this theme of the tension between keeping your options open and dedicating yourself to, you know, particular things. And what's interesting is, you know, I get a lot of young people that write and say, you know, my happiest feedback I get is when they write and say, this helped give them a lens in which to look at their own life and, you know, dive into their own commitments. But what's been fun is, you know, I've actually also heard from a bunch of older people who are midway through their long haul journeys on a commitment, who've said that, this book or this theme has made them feel closer to the decisions that they have made, which, you know, is part of the goal of the book too, that, you know, the person who gave up a lot to dive into being part of a place or having children or falling in love or, you know, stewarding an institution to feel better about that choice. Because part of the message of this book is that what you're doing is important if you're dedicated, um, when you dedicate yourself to uh, things bigger than yourself. So if we get into the concept of infinite browsing mode and open options, you start out by coining this term. Can you elaborate a bit? What is that? Uh, this, this term infinite browsing mode. So, you know, it actually, the best way to explain it is to talk about literal infinite browsing mode, which is the metaphor I use to start the book. So I'm sure this is something many of your listeners have experienced. You know, it's late at night you're browsing Netflix or Hulu or whatever, looking for something to watch. You scroll through different titles, you read a few reviews, you watch a few trailers, trying to decide, but you just can't commit to any given movie. Suddenly it's been 30 minutes and you're still stuck in infinite browsing mode. That's the concept. Um, and you're too tired to watch anything now. So you cut your losses and fall asleep. Um, that is an experience many of us have where you're presented with all these options and you spend so much time browsing that you never pick a darn movie. And, uh, and that's what uh, I'm saying is what we experience in so many other parts of our life that are much more significant than uh, just picking a movie. Um, it's the experience of always keeping our options open and browsing all the different places you could live instead of committing to a place, all the different people you could be with instead of committing to a person, all the different, um, you know, causes you could fight for, crafts you could develop instead of committing to one. And my argument is that browsing is good, but infinite browsing is bad. And so take time to browse, but then eventually dive in and make a commitment to a particular thing. Yeah, you do give it its due with uh, everything that is positive with it, like having fun and 100% flexibility and the constant novelty. But so why is it not sustainable, the infinite mode? What are the risks here? Yeah, well, the, you know, I, I talk about in the first chapter, um, right as I'm getting started in the book, I say I want to give browsing its due. Um, so I do want to say the good parts of browsing, and then that can lead into the problems of browsing. So One, browsing comes with flexibility. You know, that's that's a good thing. You know, it allows things to be, quote unquote, chill. Um, you're able to explore without having like the first person you go on a date with be your wife or husband or, you know, have the first thing you sign up for at the activities fair be the job you have for the rest of your life or the first place or the place you're born be where you live forever. Um, so flexibility is good. And flexibility leads to a much more significant thing, which is 
authenticity, discovering what authentically speaks to you, shedding some of your involuntary inherited options. And, you know, this isn't that profound to say, but browsing also leads to novelty, you know, a whole lot of fun experiencing new things. But okay, that sounds good. Browsing is good. But why is infinite browsing bad? It's because all of those pleasures are haunted by pains. Uh, you know, flexibility eventually is haunted by choice paralysis, what um, the psychologist Barry Schwartz calls the paradox of choice, the experience that if you have so many options, you have a hard time committing to any particular option and you're jumping from thing to thing. And at each point, you're adding more things that could haunt you as alternative paths if you ever do settle down with something. Authenticity can be haunted by, even though it's a very important thing, it can be haunted by what uh, the sociologist Emile Durkheim called anime, a certain spiritual isolation, a feeling of, you know, I am so into honing exactly what is particularly authentic to me that I never join up with something bigger than myself because of fear that it will be inauthentic. And thus I have nothing to aspire to. I have no community um, to encourage me on. I have no heroes to look to. I have no pa past to be inspired by or future to aspire to. And finally, novelty, all that fun, eventually curdles into the boredom of shallowness. You know, anyone who's experienced flipping through a thousand TikTok videos or jumping from the hot new thing to a hot new thing for, you know, uh, for a month or something you eventually are less intrigued by the hot new thing or the most interesting video on the internet because you're pining for something deeper. You're fearing missing out, not on the hot new thing, but on um, all the things that come at the other end of long hauls, you know, becoming an expert in a craft or an elder in a community or celebrating your 10th anniversary, you know, the joys of the long haul, not the joys of kind of intriguingness. Um, so that's why, um, eventually when those pains outweigh the pleasures, it's time to start committing. Yeah, I think we all can uh, relate to those when it become, when it goes too far and just becomes meaningless, basically. So something you talk about, like to make it more meaningful is to commit to something. And you mentioned the three fears. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about those three? Yeah, you know, so part of this process is discovering that the pains outweigh the pleasures of browsing. And that's, but the, as you're alluding to, um, that is not enough to make you to jump to commitment just because you know that you want to jump to commitment. And there's so many people in this space where they're like, I want to commit, but I just am scared. And I think the reason that that's the case is because people are haunted by these three fears of commitment. So two of them are normal. You know, you've probably heard it before. One is the fear of regret. You fear that if I, I'm going to wake up 20 years from now and wish I had committed to something else, that's fear of regret. Um, the other is the fear of missing out. You are fine with what you've chosen, but you're scared by like taking on a commitment. You might not be able to be everywhere with everyone doing everything. The fear of missing out, classic FOMO. There's also a third one that I think is really prominent, but we don't talk about as much which is the fear of association. It's the fear that a commitment will threaten our identity or our reputation or our sense of uh, control. So this is when people say like, I don't want to join up with this political party or I don't want to join up with this religion or I don't want to be part of this institution because I'm not the type of person who does that. Or 
I'm not, or I'm worried what my friends will think of me if I join up with that. Or most commonly, I'm worried about all the, the messiness that comes with dealing with all the people that will come with joining up with this thing larger than myself. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want that. And so these are um, the three fears that block us from fully diving in. I can talk about overcoming these fears, but I think I'll leave it at that just to let those fears linger for a bit. I think um, it's really, 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 really interesting. And uh, as investors, we have a, sort of a hero in the psychology space called Robert Cialdini. Maybe you probably, probably you know about him. Oh, I don't know. Tell me about him. Oh, okay. So he, he wrote this book, Influence. Um, I, think it, I think it's like 40 years old now. Um, and one of the tendencies he, he takes up is the commitment and consistency tendency that when humans commit to something we want to be consistent with that so I, I'm just thinking that if if we have that inherent principle that that we we are we want to be consistent with with what we have committed to isn't it doesn't it make sense that we are that we don't want to commit um, early Yeah, you know, it's implicit in commitment that you're controlling your future self. That's what the whole idea of keeping your options open is, is that I don't, to keep your options open is to fully free your future self. And some people even bind their present self so that they can free their future self. Like, that's why, like, I'm working so hard so I can keep my options open for my future self. But the whole idea of commitment is the opposite. It's saying... um, free your present self to dive into something um, and like follow the thing you're in, you know, the thing outside of yourself that you're in love with and go deeper into it, which might come with binding your future self, you know, that you're going to have to be consistent in the future. You're going to have to go to all the meetings. You're going to have to stay faithful to the spouse. You're going to have to stick with the cause or the union or the um, institution. You're going to have to, you know, follow all the details of this craft community that comes with it, you know, go to the annual competitions or judge the this or that other annual event. Um, But the point I'm making in this book is that you right now, when you're binding your future self, you're going to think, oh, gosh, my future self is going to be in such trouble because they're going to not want to do this or they're going to regret this or they're going to worry about missing out on things. But my big message of this book is your future self is going to be grateful to you for doing this because um, they're not going to, you are way, way, way overestimating the amount that they're going to be bothered by these things. One is the regrets fade away the deeper you go into something because the deeper you go into something, the more it imprints on your identity and rewires your sense of meaning. So you can't, to the point that you can't even imagine having been something else because it's so much a part of who you are. The fears of missing out go away because the joys of the deep novelties, you know, like I said, becoming an elder in a community, really mastering a craft, really, um, uh, you know, celebrating your 10th anniversary, really watching a project get off the ground, really seeing the dividends be paid out of a investment. Um, all of those are so sweet that you're not going to worry about the hot new thing anymore. And finally, you know, you're like, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm making my future self have to deal with all these people and all these threats to, that come with association, identity, and reputation threat, your future self is going to be friends with all those people. 
They're going to feel part of the community with all those people. They're going to rewire their sense of identity and reputation that they, you know, that they're, they get all their sense of respect from being part of that community. So um, the whole idea is you're totally estimating wrong the amount that you're binding your future self. And um, in some ways, you know, someone pointed out to me, I, I talk about, you know, part of the message of the book is we need some things in our life that aren't chill. But part of my message is that we need to be a little bit more chill about commitment. Stop worrying about um, your future selves feeling regret or missing out or, you know, the threats of association because they won't, it's very unlikely they'll be feeling that. And also, I guess, I mean, you take that up in the book as well, that many, many commitments, they, they don't need to be lifetime commitments. They can be many years, but not all are indefinite. Yeah, I actually, in my section on, you know, just the step-by-step guide to becoming comfortable with diving in, the absolute first step is called lower the stakes. You know, it is not a billion-year contract. It is not, um, most are, you know, some are lifetime, you know, in marriage, it's till death do us, us part. But most, um, you know, most commitments, part of the message of this book is not we need billion year contracts, we need, um, you know, more people doing 10 year, 20 year, even five year commitments to things just to see what happens. And even if you say, you know, I'm going to do a three year commitment to it, by my predictions in this book, it will, if it's meant for you, it'll hook into your heart so much that by the time you're done with three years, you'll want to do even more. Yeah, I read something on like the flip side of that when we talked about FOMO. Uh, I read about from uh, Grace Boney. Uh, she wrote about this saying no to things, and that's basically what you have to stick with when you avoid FOMO. And she wrote that saying no shouldn't be the end of the world. It's It's only showing that you're on the right path and... If you're already on the right path and you say no to one thing, there should be many more opportunities. So you should be careful. Yes, you know it's um, it it's you know it's it's part. I, I interviewed fifty long haul heroes for the book, um, people who had made long term commitments, and I asked them, uh, I asked them, you know, how did you avoid FOMO? How did you avoid temptation? How did you avoid grass is always greener syndrome? And they told me, uh, you know, a lot of them told me they just tried really hard to keep their life simple. You know, a lot of these committed people, it helps simplify their life. And, you know, by making that initial decision, it helped them make future decisions easier. So, you know, and they tried to, you know, not just keep their material life simple, like some of them actually like, you know, didn't live lavish lifestyles because of their commitment, but also their emotional life simple. Like, I'm not, I'm going to just have a hard and fast rule of, you know, the commitment comes first and that's going to take up a lot of my life and I'm not going to let, you know, other things get in there. I'm just going to have a hard and fast rule. Like you don't need that. You have a meeting every Thursday. So don't even consider things that are happening on Thursday. You are married. So don't even consider whether you're attracted to other people. You know, you are um, part of this cause. So don't even consider breaking, you know, breaking off with these, um, people on a day-to-day level you know it doesn't mean never quit it just means like on your average tuesday don't be sitting there browsing thinking like what's another thing i could be doing just kind of live in the reality of what you've committed to um uh occasionally again i just want to caveat it's good to have big reflections on if if this is working for me this is not a book that says never quit but it's about kind of sitting at peace with the day-to-day um when you have committed to something 
and it's also I, I guess it's uh, it makes it easier um, in how many decisions you need to make. If you have like a, if, if if you're committed to something, you don't you don't have to think about everything. You just know what to say. It's like uh, it's like uh, I. Th- yeah, I I listened to um, a podcast recently with a with a person who said he ha- he, ha- he has had a rule to not eat dessert. So it's not like when when the dessert comes, you, you just say no, and otherwise you have to think about it. Oh, maybe I maybe I want that chocolate brownie or or so on. So it it simplifies things. Yeah, you know, and it's it's much easier to have a hard and fast rule than to have like willpower every time. <laughs> You know, it's like, okay, is today the day where I was good and did I go on a run and therefore, you know, I can eat the dessert? Well, you're going to break that and make deals with that willpower and, you know, you know, edge the line a bit and push the envelope a bit. Whereas if you have a hard and fast rule, it's much easier. And that, you know, what's another word for anxiety? Anxiety is basically like your brain browsing through options of what you should be doing instead. Like, am I doing things right? You know, that's... Um, when you have made a commitment, a lot of that anxiety fades because, um, because you are taking away all this kind of moments that are spent grappling and instead transforming them into moments where you're just deepening the work. Yeah. Now we're really getting into the positive effects of of dedication. Uh, and you mentioned commitment as one of most important part but uh, you also mentioned a couple of other things that are required for dedication can you tell us a bit about those yeah so so some of the effects that come from dedication is the question yeah basically you because you mentioned like imagination for example to have a vision and those things that are also required yeah you know I, I, i yeah there's two parts to this one is like what are the things that come that come with dedication and what are the things that are the results of dedication. So in that part on, you know, what, what's comes bundled together with um, dedication, it was, it was a part of the book where I, and I, I really care about this dichotomy, you know, liberatory virtues versus dedicatory virtues. So, you know, liberatory virtues are the virtues that help you liberate yourself from possibly an involuntary commitment or an inherited injustice. So liberatory virtues are like criticism or, um, you know, freedom or sacrilege or um, cutting things down to size or irony, you know, all these things that help loosen the grip of something over you. And that's very important. And we're, you know, it's very important we teach people that because part of life is freeing yourself from involuntary inherited commitments. You know, but the second step of the liberation dedication two step is you also have to learn about what allowing things to grab hold of you, allowing things to bind you, allowing things to allowing yourself to enter into relationship with something outside of yourself. And that requires the dedicatory virtues. And so some of them I talk about that are kind of different than the liberatory virtues are like imaginations. One of them, the ability to see something that's um, different, uh, see where something is headed. Um, uh, that is different than where you are now. Like see that, you know, if you're just starting learning guitar, you know, imagine yourself playing guitar, you know, helps you get going at it. You know, reverence is part of this, the ability to be awed by something. Um, patience is part of this, the ability to just return to something over and over again. And patience and passion, you know, they're both 
descended from words that are connected to pain. Like sometimes it's hard to feel that much and to continue going at something, even though it's not the easiest thing. Um, and commitments, the most significant one, the ability to do something, even though there are other options. Um, and, uh, all those come together and, um, and, you know, help you, uh, you know, commit to something over the long haul. I'm happy to go next to talk about some of the joys that come with this because it's not, you know, part of the message of this book is it's, uh, you know, this is not all doom and gloom. It's not like finger wag, wag your finger at the listener and say, you know, you must commit and it's going to be hard and that's it. You know, part of the reason I say this is there are joys at the other end of commitments. Um, and so I'm happy to go into those, but I, I want to stop there just in case there's a, a, a question you have on that, what I've said so far. Yeah, I think, I mean, you uh, yourself, I think, um, are really, really passionate about something and it really shines through when we when we talk. But I'm, I'm just thinking sometimes a passion is not maybe guiding you to the right decision, right? You can you can make a, maybe a, a rational choice some, sometimes that, okay, my passion is not what I should fulfill. Do you have any any view on that? Yeah, you know, in the book, I, I, I don't say you should only be driven by passion. I actually talk about, and I believe in this, you know, I talk about there are different things, tools inside of us to help make decisions about what we should do. So one is passion, you know, what inspires you, what, um, what you know, gives you a spark of the divine, what, you know, fills you up and makes you feel alive. Um, another is a classic one we hear about a lot, rational analysis. I talk about the origin of the pro and con list, which was actually invented by one of the American founders, Ben Franklin. There's another, which is to, you know, that I talk about that's interesting at discovery, which is, it's this actual idea called Ignatian discernment, which is uh, invented by this, the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church, um, their founder, um, and the idea is not to analyze the I, the options outside of you. The idea is to analyze yourself when presented with the options. So if you're trying to decide, should I move to Paris or, you know, uh, Sydney, you know, you um, you think about yourself and imagine yourself moving to Paris, and then you reflect quietly on how do I feel when I fully embody that option? And then you ref you fully embody the option of moving to Sydney and you go, um, how do I feel when I fully embody that option? And then you take the data of yourself, not just analyzing the pros and cons or, um, you know, whether they're aligned, you know, that's analyzing the pros and cons of the options outside of you. So we have to look at the options outside of us, rationally analyze them. We have to look at how we experience um, uh, the options when fully presented with them and fully embodying them. And, you know, there's some others. You can analyze what aligns with your values, what inspires you. There's a lot of different ways. So I'm not saying follow your passions as the only rule. And I also think you mentioned like uh... – I mean, the importance of, of having friends or maybe a devil's advocate in, in that case to to help you with your decisions who could ask questions like, or if you, have, if, if you present a friend with that question, should you move to Paris or Sydney? And then he just say, yeah, move to Paris. And then you start to think about, I mean, the, up, the ups and downs of, of moving to, to Paris. Yeah, no, that is kind of part of the Ignatian discernment because 
when your friend says something so confidently as move to Paris, it forces you to imagine yourself actually doing it. And, you know, this is all just you sitting in a chair and thinking about it. The ultimate answer I give in the book is that you have to dive in. The only way to fully know if something's right for you is to start diving in and turning you know, turn off your analytical brain for a bit, experience the thing and see if it feels right. Um, and that, um, and then if it does go even deeper and then the commitment will have its own momentum. Yeah. And one part that I also thought about just before that moment, when you dive in, like one last check is talking about mentors. And it's something you also mentioned in the book. Like, what do you think the role should be and like, what kind of qualities should you look for in, in such a mentor? If that's something you recommend? Yeah. You know, people ask me a lot, um, what should we advise kids or young people in making commitments? And I actually, I talk about, uh, four, I believe in there's four different ways we, you know, four different things that could help. So one is, um, and one is mentors and I'll get to mentors in a second. You know, one is, you know, honing a craft with a master, you know, be an apprentice to someone. That's one way to like learn the art of commitment. Another way is to be on a team. You know, a team is going towards a goal and you learn the art of moving towards the goal, but also being loyal to your team. Another is collecting heroes, which is the idea of, you know, reading and watching and learning about lives well lived you know, learning about long haul heroes that made commitments and studying how they live their life. And the final one and most popular one is, you know, collect mentors. And yeah, I think the key with a mentor is that they're showing more than they're telling, you know, they say the best way to give advice is just to show people what you would do in that situation. And so if a mentor is just doling out advice after advice, Um, they're probably not as good as a mentor that's telling stories about times when they faced a similar situation or actually bringing you along with them to show you, to walk you through how they did things. Um, so that would be my one advice on mentors is find ones that in the words of, you know, the writing advice show, don't tell. Right. Uh, that is a really good advice. Um, something I also thought about is like when you, because we talk about commitments in general here, but like, should we, life is not always that one dimensional. So maybe it's possible to have like one commitment in one area and still do some good browsing in some other parts. Like, what do you think about the balance of having that? Yeah, there's, you know, I actually think, um, I actually think, you know, we should have multiple commitments. If you just have one commitment, you kind of, it's, it, you're on the road to fascism, basically. <laughs> um, you know, uh, the writer, the American writer, David Brooks, actually has this phrase that commitment pluralism is what will help us, you know, um, the ability to have multiple commitments and have those commitments um, moderate the extremes of the other commitments. So if you're, married to someone, but you're also loyal to your neighborhood and you're also really care about a cause, you know, the extremes of the cause will be moderated by, you know, I can't fully go all in on this because I'm married and I'm loyal to this neighborhood or, you know, you're even, you know, 
the fact that you have values outside of your marriage will allow you to not go completely all in on your marriage and have that be your your total monoculture of your life because you have other things that are important to you. Um, and so it's important, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of multiple commitments and that might mean that you lock some things in and get rooted in some things while browsing and other things. So often, you know, this isn't, um, sometimes the book goes into like your whole being is in infinite browsing mode, but often you could interpret this whole book as just a acute experience you're feeling in one part of your life. Um, and to notice that and learn from the art of commitment you have in other parts of your life. Follow up on that is um, how do you follow up if um, if a commitment is is right? Yeah, I guess this. You know, I I think the way to see if it's right is to see if it has the classic joys of commitment come with it. So, what are some of the classic joys of commitment? Well, on the other side of the fear of regret is the power of purpose. You know, if you feel like the commitment has imprinted on your identity enough that you can't even imagine regretting it and you feel alive on fire with purpose um, and meaning, then that's one sign it's going well. If in the fear of missing out, you know, if you overcome the fear of missing out through your commitment and suddenly you're getting some of the joys of depth, not, you know, the joys of the hot new thing, novelty, um, that and you're feeling like I'm feeling really deep. I'm I feel mastery. I feel um, uh, membership. I feel all the things that come with like being on you know the long haul with something. Then that's a sign your commitment's going well. And most importantly, you know if you've overcome the fear of association, what should come with that is the comfort of friends. You know if you're meeting people and becoming part of a community and you're feeling connected to each other and over time you know it's becoming less and less uncomfortable to be part of this thing then you're experiencing the joy at the other end of the fear of association. And so if purpose is coming with your commitment, if depth is coming with your commitment, if friends and community is coming with your commitment, and all of this adding up to joy is coming with your commitment, it's probably right. Um, but you got to give it a few, uh, a little bit of time to get there. And if you feel like you're headed towards there, then it's probably right. Yeah, there's many rewards at the end of it. And you definitely show that in the book very well with these uh, 50 long haul heroes that you interviewed. They were very inspiring to read. Uh, can you tell us a bit about like which ages were they, like which kind of fields were they operating in and the times uh, of their lives yeah. like, in general? You know, I, I interviewed 50 from a whole range of different you know, disciplines and times. And I also went into historic examples, so really long amount of times. Um, And I'll talk about, you know, some of the, I'll just do a tour of some of the areas. So I talk about six types of commitment. So one is commitment to a cause. I call that the work of citizens. And so I interviewed, you know, Evan Wolfson, who helped, you know, secure gay marriage in America after a 32 year long struggle of, along with many other people, but he was one of the leaders of it of making that happen. That's the work of citizens. You know, I talk about the work of commitment to places. That's the work of patriots. And I don't talk about, you know, just patriots to a country. It's patriots to a local, like local patriots to a community. I talk about Pierce Freelon, who, you know, ran for, uh, you know, uh, city council of Durham, North Carolina, you know, a city in, North, in a one state in the US. Um, and how he's such a booster of his city 
and you know knows all the history of the people that came from that city has a vision of the future of the city talks about you know the special gifts of that city that's what a local patriot sounds like um i talk about people who are committed to projects or ideas that's the work of builders i interviewed a restaurateur irene lee who talks about showing up every day at a restaurant for years on end and trying to have the same thing happen which is run a good day of making the same dishes every every day um and how she finds uh joy in building up a track record you know it's not the magnum opus it's the corpus of all of her work um i talk about the work of maintenance which is the work of stewards it's not just creating new things that should be celebrated it should be all the people that are keeping things going so i interviewed the rabbi in my town Amy Schwartzman, who has to, you know, do the same high holidays every year, do the same prayers every week. Um, but over time, you know, she she's the rabbi for a kid doing their bar mitzvah. And then she ends up being so long a rabbi in the community that she does their kids bar mitzvah um, and the specialness that that feels. Commitment to craft, that's the work of artisan. You know, I interviewed Mickey Raphael, who fell in love with the harmonica and ended up being Willie Nelson, you know, the famous country music artist, harmonica player and traveled around the world all because he was committed to honing the craft of harmonica. And finally, the most important commitment, commitment to particular people. That's the work of companions. And I interviewed teachers and pastors and parents and people who fell in love. Um, and just what's it like to, you know, be present in someone's life over the long haul. You know, I interviewed the mentorship program in my city, Washington, D.C., and they um, they say, you know, if I had on one hand the most charismatic, entertaining mentor, but they were flaky, and I had on another hand, you know, a boring mentor, but they were committed and they were going to show up for years on end, you know, multiple years, I'd always take the latter because what kids need is someone to show up over and over again saying, I choose you. Um, and that's the power of, you know, commitment when it comes to companionship. So those are that's a tour of some of the six uh, types of committers, citizens, patriots, builders, stewards, artisans and companions. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds us of um, our first guest in the podcast, Sean Eddings, who wrote about intelligent fanatics and people like exceptional people who built companies that like lasted for decades and decades. And what did they do like special? And one part is just like compounding the exponential power of uh, depth, as you talk about. And in our world of like evaluating like which people are dedicated and how do you find these kind of exceptional businesses, one part that is most related for us is the builders that you mentioned, uh, those who have like they are visionaries, they turn the dreams into realities. And, and But we also meet a lot of like some people, they talk more than they actually do. How would you say that you determine the level of like true dedication among these people? Yeah, I would just look at that, you know, look at if they have a track record of commitment, you know, and don't go by what they say, go by what they do. You know, I, I work in politics and my big way of measuring a candidate is have they showed loyalty to anything bigger than themselves? You know, you can look at the most charismatic candidate. And you kind of look at their biography and you're like, wait, they're just jumping from thing to thing, trying to climb the ladder of success. They definitely want to be president, you know, and they've never sacrificed anything for a cause bigger than themselves or an institution bigger than themselves. And there's no reason to believe they're going to change. So um, 
you know, whereas there are other candidates who are like, you know, they've made all these sacrifices for causes bigger than themselves. They stuck around with this town and helped transform a town and, you know, did it longer than they needed to. Um, they foregoed the option to like go to higher office because they, um, they wanted to finish the job of something. You know, those are the ones you should look at for who are going to be loyalty at this next level of office. And I think the same is true for businesses. Look of if someone's trying to get their golden parachute payday, jumping from thing to thing as a mercenary instead of a missionary. Or look at the people that, you know, have given everything because they're fanatically obsessed with an idea that they want to turn into a reality. And, um, and have shown it in the past. They'll probably continue showing it into the future, you know. Um, not saying people can't change, but, you know, it's a good rule of thumb. And so um, uh, that's what I would look, you know, don't look at where they're talking, look at what they've done. Yeah. And, and uh, related to that, uh, do you see any specific like characteristics among these people? We talked with him a bit about like emotional intelligence, for example. Yeah, you know, all of the I, I can't uh, mention this enough, all of the long haul heroes They had a part of them that was committed to what some might call like emotional simplicity. Like, you know, I talked to this one, Evan Wolfson, who was in the 32-year gay marriage struggle. He um, he talked about how I never wanted to be surprised or disappointed. I really wanted to keep an even keel during the 32-year walk. Because if I was always surprised that we won or disappointed that we lost, I would get exhausted. So I just, you know, sometimes I was happy, sometimes I was sad, but you know, I tried to keep it really even, you know, I interviewed another guy, um, Monty Anderson, who does public interest real estate down in Texas. And he, uh, he talked about, you know, when I'm down, I got really grateful. When I'm up, I got really humble. You know, it was like an emotional HVAC system, you know, when it gets too hot, make it colder, when it gets too cold, make it hotter. Because he was really trying to keep an even keel because over the long haul, You cannot be a live wire, loose cannon person, or it won't work. You have to be slow and steady. And so the ones that have the temperament to keep their emotions in check and not get burnt out are probably the ones that can last on the long haul. Yeah, I really like that quote. That was something that uh, st stuck with me. But you're quite skeptical to to businesses and that they are many are, are short term oriented and And we, of course, also see that, that a lot. And it's probably a negative trend. Uh, we talked with Jake Taylor about that in our last episode about capitalism going the wrong way in that sense. But we also see that there are many companies that are committed for the long haul. They really want to do good for the stakeholders and promote these kind of win-win relationships. And we see like the ESG trend, uh, so social responsible investments are really popular And that is just like screaming responsibility and sustainable. Uh, what are your thoughts on that development? Yeah, you know, I have a chapter in the book called Money Versus Particular Things. And this whole uh, point of this book, you know, and this is a real important clarification, is some people think I'm talking about, you know, commitment to anything, you know, commitment to my own health regimen or commitment to my own productivity regime. And I am not talking about that. I am talking about commitment to particular things outside of them ourselves, particular causes, particular places, particular ideas, particular institutions, particular crafts, particular people. Um, I don't say what the particular people or crafts or causes are, like that's for the committers, but 
it for them are concrete particular things outside of themselves that I'm calling on people to be committed to. And one of the problems with money culture is it has a, uh, it desires to grow and expand to more and more places and, you know, wash over particular things, liquefy them, flatten them and convert them into something else, often for the sake of someone's profits. And we have to keep that in check and transform our economy so that it serves particular things that we hold beloved. And some particular things are more important than others, particular people being the most important. So if our economy is eating up workers, tossing them, you know, eating them up when we need them and then tossing them out when we don't need them anymore, if it's taking main streets and small towns and ruining them, if it's um, taking people's founders' dreams and mixing them into mergers and acquisitions and financialization schemes that are not, um, that kind of take the original idea and um, that people loved and, you know, make it the lowest common denominator version of it. Um, that's not good. But if it's helping, you know, if money's helping facilitate the growth of a beautiful, you know, way of running a good or a service, that's good. If it's helping, you know, uh, spread wealth to a bunch of different people through, you know, running production in a way that incorporates all the stakeholders, that's good. And if it's doing what it needs to do, but it keeps in check, you know, um, uh, you know, the effect it's having on the environment or on communities or on uh, people, then that's good too. So, um, so it all, it depends on how we organize it. If we just make it just the profit motive and just, we're trying to make as much money as we can, it's going to eat up our earth. It's going to eat up our people. It's going to eat up um, everything we hold precious. It's going to eat up itself, you know, the, the ideas themselves. Um, but if we can make sure those checks are put in place and make sure balance of power uh, is structured, power is balanced in the right way, then, you know, we have a shot at it, getting all the good stuff of it and not throwing away the baby with the bathwater without the bad stuff. One, one trend we have seen in the, the that I think is in the right direction is uh, that many businesses are aiming for, I mean, really long-term relationships with their customers. Um, and I've actually viewed that many times when, when you, when you like get a builder to your home now, um, they are, I mean, they're really eager to get a review on, on some of the, the rating services. And that really triggers them into the right behavior, into long-term behavior. What's your view on, on that trend? Yeah, you know, that is one of the great ways we can help keep things in check because, you know, um, Alexis de Tocqueville, I learned this from uh, one of my heroes, Robert Putnam, he, he found this quote of Alexis de Tocqueville, which is, you know, um, it's self-interest rightly understood is what we should be aiming for, you know, and what it means by self-interest rightly understood is that the thing that will help all of us is helping all of us in the long run. You know, in the short run, you make might make more money screwing someone over or poisoning our planet or eviscerating workforce. Um, but in the long run, that's not a world we want to live in. And no one is helped by that. And people are actually hurt by these inequalities um, and these kind of rapaciousness of um, uh, towards the, towards our common home. And so I think, one way to, you know, without kind of beating people over the head with all the specific causes, one way to get everyone to um, 
to do better and kind of see that we're all connected is to get everyone to think long-term and say, you know, do you want to be someone who jumps in, makes a quick buck and leaves, or do you want to be a major institution in the future of the world? And the only way to do that is to think in the long run. Yeah. Another question regarding the business side, many investors, in my opinion, at least are looking for the next big thing, the next hot thing like Tesla or whatever, but you talk a lot about that the current culture is actually overvaluing these kind of new innovative uh, things and undervalue maintenance. Can you t give your perspective on that? Yeah, there's this wonderful, and I'm taking this idea from this other group called the Maintainers, um, uh, co-founded by Lee Vinsel. So this isn't originally my idea, but it's basically this idea that, you know, when we look at the economy, what's in the headlines is like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and all the people inventing the hot new thing. But if you look at the actual, you know, day-to-day -day experience of the economy, I used a sink, I used a refrigerator, I went on the highway, I, I called someone on a cell phone network, I walked across a lawn that was maintained by someone, I used a revolving door that, you know, is the latest in the revolving door um, uh, uh, technology. Um, it all is, um, it all is because of maintainers that most of the economy um, functions. It's not the person who invents it, but the person who maintains the highway or the cell phone network. It's the person who tinkers after something is done to create the latest version of something. It's the person who writes the help manuals and staffs the call centers. It's the people who cut the lawns and And that's just maintenance of technology. Think about maintenance of social systems, all the people that keep the law going or social services going or education going. And those people, if they, you say, oh, that's not as important as the innovators. Well, what if those people stopped maintaining? The whole world would fall apart. Um, what if, uh, what if you know, Steve Jobs invents the iPhone, but then they never have a cell phone network or they never have instruction manuals or they never have places where they fix it or they never have the, um, genius bar at the Mac store where people like trade things in. Um, it won't work. Innovation only works within a maintained uh, kind of inf maintenance infrastructure. And so we need to celebrate that maintenance. And, and once you start noticing that, you'll notice it everywhere. Um, and often, you know, if you look at what's been happening with Tesla, you know, um, you know, Tesla has the hot new thing. They have announcements all the time, but then you start noticing over time, wait, why are their cars breaking down more and more? You know, why Why are the big guys like Toyota and GM um, doing better at some of the less sexy things? You know, like, you know, honing, you know, keeping the safety standards and keeping it production up. Um, it's because there are real craft skills and industrial skills, like organizational uh, expertise that are grown over time. And sure, they need shocks of innovation and we need permanently innovative cultures, but you can't just have that and not have all the boring stuff too. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, one question on these kind of situations, like when you, I mean, Elon Musk must be, he, he's very dedicated to his cause. That, no one can say anything else about that. But in this kind of sense, maybe he's facing like a loss or a failed commitment here. Like, How would you say, how can, and many investors always have to, you always have to deal with losses. You need to see that you committed to this owning something and it doesn't work out. Like, how do you deal with that? In, do you have some advice for us there? 
like how to deal with um, committing to things and and it doesn't bear fruit. Is yeah. that what you're basically asking? Exactly. Yeah, you know, this is part of life. You know, I talk about in the book, a commitment is like a relationship and a relationship is a living thing. By which I mean any commitment is a living relationship with the thing you're committed to. So it's not like a dead rule. That's what I'm comparing it to. A dead rule is you must be committed to this. Um, and that's the rule. And you don't even need to look at what's happening in the real world. You just have to follow the rule. A living relationship, a living commitment is you give to it, you receive back from it joy and purpose and community, you give to it more, you receive back to it, you change it, it changes you, it's alive. But sometimes, like all living things, these relationships and thus these commitments die. You know, you discover one day it's not able to give back anymore. It's not able to transform you anymore. You're not able to transform it anymore. The lines of communication have severed. The... Um, you aren't getting much out of it and it's not getting much out of you. And, and it would be morbid to continue committing to that out of a dead, out of, out of a dead rule. Um, and so, you know, it's very important that we, we quit and, and, um, cut off the dead branches of the tree of life so that we, um, so that we have room for other things to grow. And, um, so this is not a book that's like finger wagging at you that, uh, says you must commit at all costs. You must never quit. It's just about lean into having a little bit more sticky commitments. Lean into planting that original seed and tending to that sapling. Lean into that. Um, and uh, it's not a. And often the best way for that to happen is to to quit something that isn't living anymore. That is very true. Don't have relationship problems with people you don't have are in a relationship with. <laughs> Um, dedicated really conveys a powerful message and we are so thankful for you taking the time to come on the podcast uh, where can people find the book and follow you yeah it's I'm at PeteDavis.org I'm on Twitter at um, at Pete D. Davis and if you want to go straight to the book it's DedicatedBook.org and where can people find it maybe in their local bookshop is the best place yeah and it's in there yeah and that has links out to uh, finding it in your local bookshop, or if it's not in your local bookshop, finding it in one of the larger uh, larger online bookstores. Great. And uh, for people who are interested in this uh, topic and have read the book already, can you recommend anything else on the same in the same area? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I the books that were really inspiring to me are I Am Thou by Martin Buber, which is all about like the spiritual core of relationships. Um, with things outside yourself, I am now by the Jewish theologian Martin Buber. And the other is uh, Lewis Hyde's The Gift, which is a reflection on gift cultures over market cultures. So I would recommend those two books. Thank you so much and uh, take care and good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pete. Take care. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. You can follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at RedEye.se. To improve the podcast, we really appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit RedEye.se. For the editing of this podcast, we thank Jon Hintze and for the graphic design, Jesper Viking. 
I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.